0: all the best things in life are pretty challenging and the sense of accomplishment that you get when you've tackled that challenging thing and you've done it cannot be compared to
1: anything else. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Baladance Dance Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnicka, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Baladance dance art form. Plus, I really like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Have you ever considered adding a fitness element to your ballet dance classes? This can significantly help you to get more students through the door and, most importantly, retain them and earn more money. Check out Sharky the belly workout. The founder of the system, Orid, shares how teaching belly fitness transformed her own career in a way no performance opportunities ever could. In her course, you will receive tips on how to teach and get ready for the class, including ready-made class choreos as well as useful insights on business aspect of this activity. Join Sharky's three-month instructor academy that features an online course, weekly coaching sessions, and business training. You live with razor-sharp teaching skills and best practices for your teaching business. Enrollment is now open for the next Sharky Instructor Academy beginning January 2nd. Apply at sharky.com teach. It's s-h-a-r-p-u-u-i dot slash teach direct link in the show notes i had so much joy recording this interview with our today's amazing guest sahira because the joy and passion that she shares towards belly dance and particularly Finger symbols and dancing with finger symbols—it's so obvious that you can't help but also start getting inspired and motivated to do, to go, to dance, to play, to learn more. So here, I began ballet dancing full time in 2001, and at some point, she was dancing five nights a week sometimes up to seven shows in an evening. In 2005, she released her first instructional DVD and shortly after that got invited to teach and perform all around the world. In 2006, she even had the honor of being the first tribal instructor ever invited to teach at the largest belly dance festival in the world, Ahlan Vasahlan in Cairo. She is also the proud co-owner of Belladonna Dance, voted Houston's best belly dancers by the Houston press and the founding director of Houston's premier, tribal-style troupe Urban Hipses. Today she's teaching online and in person both ballet dance and specifically dancing ballet dance with finger symbols, and she tries to share her passion to this music instrument with many different events and projects that she creates In our today's episode we talked all range of topics starting from how she got fired unexpectedly fired from her regular job and how that led her to dive into belly dance career we also talked about the importance of networking and connections and i even asked a tricky question what is more important than skills or good connections in this industry in her opinion but of course we talked also a lot about finger symbols the learning process the teaching process especially the teaching process online vice versa, vice versa in person we talked about where to purchase good symbols how to choose them how to practice and try not to annoy too much your neighbors and where to perform and how to perform if you're bringing finger symbols to big theater to big stages and all sorts and all details and all nuances of Playing finger symbols as ballet dancers. So, I hope it will give you lots of information, lots of thoughts. There are some uh, cool tips for you of where to dive in playing with finger symbols. And here uh, even produced a couple free resources for people to dive or expand their uh, finger symbols techniques or understanding of this instrument. So, all this and, of course, a little bit more in our today's conversation. Enjoy! Jelena and Belly Dance Evolution are back taking their show and programs across the globe. You know how many guests we had previously on this podcast sharing how much their experience with BDE pushed their dance career. You can have it too. Audition for Jelena's latest production and join Jungle Book Cast. All details at www.joinbde.com. Direct link in the show notes. Joinbde.com. Hello, dear Sahira. Welcome to the Ballet Dance Life uh, podcast. Uh, Excited to see you, to hear you, and to chat today with you about dance, dance life, and dance experience. Thank you for joining me today. (laughs) Oh, it is my honor,
0: Yana. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: I would love to start from the very beginning. And I know you had a very cute, interesting story of how you actually entered ballet dance and entered stage in general. So can you share a little bit about your very early Artistic stage experience, as well as specifically, what's the deal with ballet dance? How did it enter your life? When was that moment of like, okay, I want to go and study ballet dance?
0: Yes, I feel like everyone's origin story is so unique and so different. And I, you, like you mentioned, I've been on stage. Pretty much my whole life. I was a pageant girl when I was little, which is sort of funny to think about now. I started on stage singing and doing interviews and modeling when I was about three. And I had nothing to do with that. That was my mother completely. But I thank her on a regular basis because it's made me comfortable on stage. And so from that, I did some commercial work, some modeling when I was little. I was in like, had a one small movie part when I was like five years old, which was very exciting. And I think I always just had the bug to be on stage after that. So I did music and I I studied, I'd singing, and I did theater all throughout high school, all throughout college, but never dance. Actually, in a funny story, I took my first dance class In college, because we had to take dance for like a a gym, like a physical education credit we had. So we had to take something. And I was like, well, I don't want to do track. I don't want to do soccer. I don't want to do anything else. I'll take this modern dance class. And I vividly recall standing there in front of the mirror in our, you know, school issued black unitard doing modern dance, saying, Oh, my goodness. I am so glad that I'm an engineering major. I'm a horrible dancer. Like it was so it was so bad. And so and then I laugh now, thinking about it, it was really from that point. It was probably about six years later that I became full-time in dance. So I didn't start belly dance until I graduated from college. And suddenly I was working as an engineer and and you know, working in that field and didn't have the creative outlets that I had in college, right? I was doing theater, I was doing orchestra in college. And I thought, well. I, gosh, I need something artistic in my life to keep me sane. And that is when I saw belly dance for the first time here in Houston at a little, like a, it was a bar. It was a bar on Tuesday nights. They did what they called Gothic belly dance. And it wasn't very Gothic really, except one dancer did come out with like a knife and fangs. So she was pretty Gothic. <laughs> the other dancers basically danced mostly to non Arab music. And I think that's why they sort of promoted it the way they did. And so I would go every Tuesday and I fell in love and I thought it was amazing, right? Just like everyone who gets into the dance are like, oh my gosh, this is magical. How do I get into this? And about a year later, I think I got a pamphlet for a leisure learning local course. It was like an eight week learn to belly dance course. And, you know, kind of kind of the rest is history. That's what's got me into, into the study of dance
1: itself. Hmm. So you basically were introduced to belly dance, not with classical ballet dance or what we call classical or egyptian or traditional ballet dance but it kind of was like the ballet dance fusion styles already and when you went to your first class did it meet your expectations from what you kind of imagined the ballet dance would be or was it something different and unexpected for you
0: You know, a little, a little bit of both. I also vividly recall my first belly dance class. I was actually, I had plans to go to this class and I also had plans to have like a doctor's appointment in the morning. And I remember the doctor ran late and I walked out because I'm like, I'm not missing this belly dance class. So I left, I left my doctor's appointment because the doctor hadn't arrived on time. And I was like, I'm going to this class. And I got there and the woman who walked out and I, I know her to this day, she's actually the veterinarian for the, the, one of the, the bunnies, this animal that I had for many, many years. So she's a vet. She walked out at the time. I think she was like eight and a half months pregnant, about five feet tall and had on these big dark glasses. And I, I was waiting for princess Jasmine, right. To walk through the door. And here comes my belly dance instructor. And I was like, wow. Okay. Class was incredible. I loved it. Like she taught us some movements. I remember standing in one place for 45 minutes and sweating buckets because it was so hard. And then at the end, she played some music. We all got in a circle. and We had to improvise in my very first class. And um, you couldn't stop me coming back from there. I never missed a class after that because I thought it was so incredible. So the person who came out to teach surprised me. I was like, no way. Uh, but, you know, I quickly realized, man, this, this woman can dance. And it was awesome.
1: Wow, that's quite an experience uh, right away, you know, first class and uh, so many surprises and uh, realizations probably of how ballet dance uh, kind of accepts and incorporates all uh, genders, body types, stages of life, like in in the case of your teacher, (laughs) uh, ages, professions, etc. Because you you also mentioned your teacher was a veterinarian (laughs) too. (laughs) So that's really, really cool. So, you went to your ballet dance class, you fall in love with dance. Uh, you probably still had thoughts that, oh my God, uh, dance is hard and difficult. Uh, you were engineer at that time already. How did it happen that you dropped everything and became actual full-time dancer?
0: So this was not my plan and people approach me all the time and they say, Oh my gosh, that's so inspiring that you left your engineering job to pursue your passion. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly how it happened. I had been dancing for not very long had been just under a year. And my instructor at the time was a different instructor than my very first instructor. She actually had me substitute for her at a local Greek restaurant one night when she didn't want to dance. She wasn't in the mood to dance. So she sent me and one other dancer. It's the most nervous I have ever been in my entire life because I was dancing to a live band. So the first solo I had ever done was to a live band. And so I I got out there on the stage and I, and I danced and it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible, Yana. It wasn't, I have it on video. I have it on a VHS tape and I watch it now and I smile. It's, it's cute. Um, It wasn't terrible. It was probably too soon, but I remember I finished and I felt incredible. And then the owners of the venue gave me money. And I was like, no way. Are you kidding me? You'll give me money for this? This is incredible. I was continuing to work as, as an engineer. I did enjoy my work. Um, but then I was laid off in a really, really ugly way. Like the woman I was working for was, was very underhanded, laid me off in an ugly way. And it was a very bad experience. And I told myself then, I never want to work for someone else ever again, because it was such a bad experience. And at that point in time, I had nothing to lose. I was like 23, 24, maybe, right? I was renting a tiny little apartment with like this guy I was living with. I didn't own much. I now had no job. And so the only way I knew at that time to really work as a belly dancer was through the Renaissance Festival. I had done One season at the Texas Renaissance Festival here in Texas, uh, you make no money dancing at the Renaissance Festival. But I thought, well, I'm going to do some more Renaissance Festival. So I literally I packed up all my belongings into a storage unit and I got in my car and I drove out to Arizona. I had family in Arizona. And I did the Arizona Renaissance Festival. I worked a jewelry booth during the day. And during my breaks, I ran down to a stage at the end of the lane and I danced as a guest dancer with another ensemble and started making connections. And so eventually I would do the Arizona fair. I did the Michigan fair. I've done a couple of the fairs. I would do the Texas fair. And that's how I would sort of make my living, quote unquote, I wasn't making much money. And luckily, the person I lived with here in Houston charged me no rent, because I had nothing to pay. Um, But it started getting the ball rolling. And I started making more connections. Uh, Actually, one particular gentleman who saw me at the fair, who had connections here, he's Persian, and I started dancing at an Iranian restaurant here in town, and then started getting gigs doing, you know, weddings and other events. And it just slowly snowballed from there. And I had always said, you know, I'll do this for a few years and I'll go back to engineering because I loved what I did. Uh, and that was 22 years ago. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I could go back to engineering now because I can't remember how to do it. Uh, and I didn't realize that dance could be sort of a lifelong career. I thought, you know, I would age out at 30 and it would be all over. But, you know, here we are and I'm I'm still doing it. And I am grateful every day that that's even a, a possibility. It's kind of crazy when I think about it. <laughs>
1: So how did your professional journey evolved from Renaissance uh, festivals to some restaurant gigs? And uh, uh, was it just... I'm really curious for you back at that time, if you can think, did you had at some point, because it never happens right from the beginning, when we start something new, we very often don't know what we are doing and where we are heading <laughs> to but once we start doing something once we start <laughs> figuring out things we start seeing some different opportunities some different uh, you know paths uh, or start having some goals or dreams so at that time back when you were starting did everything just evolve natural, like or you were going from one opportunity to another whatever rose or at some point you start having a dream dance dreams and goals like, oh, I actually want to do that. And you start strategically working towards that goal. How was it for you? Because for everyone it will be different, especially when it's dance comes unexpected in, in our life and unexpected as a profession. But how was that experience for you?
0: That's a great question. And I I've never really thought about it this way before. Like at first it was absolutely just sort of random and organic and one experience and opportunity would lead to another, right? I, would, I was in Arizona dancing at the festival there, taking all the classes I could at a local studio. A dancer there saw me. She had a troupe of dancers that performed in Michigan. She asked me to go with them to Michigan. So I did that, you know, and, and I created connections that way. Came back to Houston. Someone saw me there, got me a gig at the, at the Persian restaurant. And from there, more people saw me. I started doing more private parties. Where I think things became a bit more intentional was in my teaching and my, my troupe work, So I started teaching dance when I was here, uh, like when I would be here for a a good amount of time. And that even came from someone meeting me. And I mentioned I was a dancer and they had a studio. Would you like to teach classes? I was like, absolutely. Let me start teaching classes. But then I started taking workshops. I, I like to liken it to, I call it falling down the rabbit hole, like Alice in Wonderland. Like you kind of peer in and you're like, ooh, this is kind of interesting. And then all of a sudden you find yourself falling. And you're getting deeper and deeper and sort of discovering everything. So I started taking workshops when they came into town because we have a pretty good scene here in Texas. And even in Houston, I would take workshops. And so I took a workshop, I remember, with Fat Chance Belly Dance in 2001 when they came into town. And I said, ooh, what is this? Because we didn't have any like ATS style, you mm-hmm. know, in in Houston at the time. And I said, I want you know, a, a, an improv style troupe. And so then I built it. I said, this is something I want to do. I think this is very cool. It doesn't exist in Houston. I'm going to build it. And so I created my troupe Urban Hipsy and we still, we still dance together today. And then I think another thing that was hugely influential, I would say it was maybe five or six years in, there was a very well-known troupe here in town called Belladonna Dance and they were four fantastic dancers. And one of the dancers was out on maternity leave and they needed a sub. And so they came and auditioned me. They brought me into the troupe. And from there, luckily, I brought a couple of gigs with me. They had a bunch of weekly gigs. And together, we danced five nights a week for many, many, many years. Because once the original dancer came back in, they said, you know, we have enough work for everyone. And that was huge. Because then I was a working dancer. Five nights a week, sometimes up to seven shows a night. And we were just going, 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 going. And that really created a lot of momentum. Uh, And then I would say, honestly, like the next big sort of conscious, this is something I want to do, would be, oh, there were two things. We created, my troupe created uh, the Third Coast Tribal Dance Festival a long time ago. We started this festival maybe like 15, 16 years ago. It no longer exists, but we did it for a number of years. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly intentional and a lot of work. And now my focus, this was a, a, a very intentional focus about Five or six years ago, after my daughter was born, I said, "Okay, now I'd like to focus more on my teaching and build that side of my business because I'd like to be at home at night to have dinner with my family."
1: Mm -hmm. And so I
0: go out and do all the, you know, all the restaurants and the nightclubs and the hookah bars. I book other dancers to do that, and I I stay home and have dinner with my family now, which is nice.
1: (laughs) How do you feel if that situation with your job happened not? those 20 years ago whenever it happened but happened now did you choose dance as a profession like let's imagine you kept going and being an engineer and work but well having training and falling in love is validance too over all those years and then suddenly you laid off now would you choose dance as your profession now at this point of your life or would you try to go back to engineering right away (laughs) Right. I, you know, my gut instinct, I've never thought about
0: it, Yana. That's such a good question. My gut instinct is that I probably wouldn't, I am way too practical of a person, way too, if dance hadn't grabbed me and just whisked me away 22 years ago or 20 years ago when I started doing it full time, like I would have never chosen it, not for lack of desire, but for fear probably. And just, uh, uh, I have way too much practicality in my brain. And so I would think, oh, no, you know, I can't make a career out of that. I wanted to be an actress (laughs) when I was a kid. And I actually went to New York summer before my senior year of college and worked as an actress just to see what it was like. I say worked. I made zero dollars, but I auditioned. I did, I did theater shows, and I made no money at all, uh, and I said, that's, that's fun, you know, I can always act on the side in a community theater show, I don't have to try to make money and make a living out of it, and I think I would have taken the same approach to dance. I would say, that's okay, I can do all of these fun shows, I can dance here and there for fun, I can do the big workshop events, but I don't have to have the stress of it being the thing that pays my rent. I think I, I think I'd be too practical and how sad would that be like I can't even imagine what my life would be like <laughs> if I was still at my engineering desk oh no I can't I don't even want to think about it <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a tricky question because of course it's unfair to ask what if because you had experience of going to dense career for so many years so you know also all inside it's not like a fresh eye on like oh maybe that's exciting so it was just a tricky i was just curious to know your opinion because you could have answered anyway uh, but uh, it, it's also different perspective because we do have this experience now we know all insights and then even if we imagine that we didn't go through this path it's still it's still not really like the the same state of mind than if it really happened the situation was reality you know like this imaginary situation was reality
0: <laughs> exactly to unknow what yeah. you know and to imagine where you would be without that knowing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's fun to, to think about. It's very very interesting to think about.
1: <laughs> uh there are two very typical typical stereotypes or myths in dancers mind. One is that oh being a good dancer is enough for a good career. Like, oh, I just need to put all my emphasis on training. And another myth is like uh, that uh, half like myth, half jealousy sometimes that catches up like, oh, she is uh, successful because she has friends or she was invited to that festival because of network or connections. And what caught my attention in your story when you were describing your journey, you were putting emphasis on two things. You very often were mentioned that you were creating network and that network was bringing you to one project uh, from one project to another, and at the same time, you were mentioning that you were trying to take as many classes as possible, so you were trying to strengthen your skills as a dancer. So I have now a tricky question. One more. I kind of feel like okay, we are in the mood of tricky questions. So, in your good. opinion, what is more important, good dance skills or good networking?
0: Oh, Yana, you're going to make me answer that. Okay. I am gonna say that in my experience, like honestly, the connections are amazing. I have witnessed, I've not only personally witnessed myself had experiences with connections being everything to get me an incredible opportunity. I have also witnessed like incredible dancers being passed up for an opportunity, typically not for lack of connection, but for lack of the correct look. And that's a totally different story. But I've definitely seen dancers come through the the circuit who are amazing promoters. And we've hired them, say, for Third Coast Tribal for this festival we did for many years, because everyone's asking for them. They're incredible promoters. And then we get them in and we're like, huh, really? Like, I don't think their dancing is all that fantastic but they've really promoted the heck out of themselves and so they've created an incredible career from that the example for me personally where connection was everything i taught at ahlan wasahlan in cairo egypt in 2005 i had been dancing for five years 100 connection one hundred percent. I knew a woman here in, in Texas, Didi Hassan, for many, many years. She would bring all these Egyptian greats to Dallas and I would go to all of her workshops because it, it was the only way to learn from the Egyptians at that point in time. Like traveling to Egypt wasn't as big of a thing. Uh, and so it was incredible. Uh, and then she was actually friends with Madame Rahia Hassan because she would go to Ahlam Asaflan every year, support her. She connected with Rahia and maybe even brought her in at one point in time, connected with her with these dances. And then... Madam Rakhia Hassan, one year, probably just before 2005, told Didi, I, what's this tribal thing? I hear about this tribal thing in the States. What is this? I need to have this at my festival. And Didi knew a an improvisational tribal group. I had just released a DVD the prior year. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've got the person for you. She hands Rakhia my DVD and voila, we are invited to Ahlan Wasafah. Were there other tribal groups that were probably way more popular and way more established and far more skilled than my group? Absolutely. But Rahia asked Didi and Didi knew me. Right. And so that was one thousand. Now we went in there and we did a darn good job. We were scared to death. It was the hardest thing we taught in front of a room of people that hundreds of people with maybe 30 different languages and we realized you can't actually talk and teach. You just have to dance. Uh, but that was 100% the connections we had. Now I feel like your connections will only get you so far if you don't have the dance to back it up. So obviously the dancing is important is very important. And so if people can, can develop both of those at the same time, or perhaps develop your dance first and then really make some connections. Because a lot of the workshops that I have done, especially in my early days, were 100%. Hey, I know you, you're my friend, you've got a studio. Can I come in and teach?
1: And they'd say, Oh, yeah,
0: sure, let's do that. And then you start to build a resume of workshops you've taught and, and you look like you know what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing that story. That's incredible. And I'm really grateful for you openly like talking about these things because many dancers they it's a good signal, like yeah, of course good dance skills it it's important. Like without it you cannot be professional but do not lock yourself in the dance studio and just rely that the chance of luck somehow the world will discover you like because many dancers shame shy away from this like you know promoting yourself or it's boring or it's not respectful or it's sleazy or i don't want to sound like a salesperson it's not really about that but thank you even for sharing like your specific story and with all insights like yeah like Dancing, good dancing is of course important, but you cannot rely just on that. You need to make easy for the world to discover you. And this is basically one of the uh, tools is networking. Absolutely. And I'm glad you
0: bring it up. I think a lot of dancers feel, especially now with the proliferation of social media, they think if I'm just an awesome dancer and I put my videos out on social media, I'm going to receive all of these invitations to perform or to teach or whatever. And, you know, while those things Sometimes happen. They are the vast minority of experiences. And so I feel like it's one thing if someone wants to learn to dance and they want to have fun and make it a hobby, awesome. But if you want to make it a career, you have to learn the business side of it because it is a business, right? So there is marketing, there is networking, there is all of the stuff that a lot of time artists, artist types don't want to do. They just want to make their art. And I get that, but it's very hard to cultivate a business if you only wanna focus on the art.
1: Yeah. And there are exceptions and true magic uh, uh, moments and cases, but unfortunately they are exceptions. That's the said true, like we don't see how many tough stories are behind every like simple, let's say quote unquote simple story of su- success. But thank you for bringing it up. I want to actually to slightly switch our conversation because one of your specialty that you are known for is also zeals. Along these many other things that you're doing but Zills is one of the main things so when did you get introduced to Zills? and what was your very first experience touching the instrument putting it on trying to play do you remember that <laughs> i do i do remember and i'm
0: so glad you asked because this is kind of pivotal to sort of how i now approach Zills with my students i learned finger symbols within the first year of dancing like it wasn't in that very first class But the very first choreography that I ever learned not only had finger symbols, but it had veil as well. It had veil and finger symbols. So it was put onto my fingers within probably the first six months. And I didn't have my own pair. The studio had like a big bucket, big basket of Zills. And we would just grab them and and put them on. And the elastics never fit you because they weren't sized for you. And we just started playing. And I don't remember there being very specific sort of musical uh, instruction about it. It was just like, and now play this while you do the choreography you've just learned and I was like okay here we go and so from the get-go I had to play them which I think is an integral part of why I've always accepted them why I've always enjoyed them and how I've found it easier to integrate them with my dancing than someone that maybe has danced for five years feels very comfortable in the dance and then tries to put finger symbols on so they have just always been there I can't imagine The dance without them, it seems like just a natural compliment because they've always been there
1: and how do you deal today with students who come to you and you have students of different levels and some of them may not be a really big fan of zills or does it naturally happen that only students who actually want to learn zills come to you <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question well my beginner students usually when
0: they come to me i am their first introduction to the belly dance world so they have no idea what they're getting into and within you know within usually the first several months we'll end up picking up zills and just playing with them in class and so I try to make the introduction, you know, very short, sweet, fun, playful, exploratory, you know, so that way it just becomes a natural part of their belly dance experience like it was for me. Now, my intermediate students, this has been an interesting thing because we are actually currently right now working on an acapella finger cymbal composition that we are planning to perform later this year and just last night actually I had a dancer come to class who was brand new and it's odd for me to get a new intermediate dancer that I don't recognize someone who's not in the scene or hasn't come through my beginner class I said oh okay you know do you have a lot of experience with finger symbols and she was like no not really I said oh I said well let me just let you know you are jumping into the deep end here and we're going to have a lot of fun, but I want you to know we do very high level finger cymbal stuff in here because it's kind of my thing. So I give people options. I say, you know, my beginner class is doing a drum solo if you want to go and jump into that. But this class, I, I'm a musician. We're learning musical counting. We're doing like multiple tones. We're doing complex patterns. I said, and if you're game to jump into that, let's do it. If for any reason you think that's not your thing, let's talk about a different class for you. And so people, people know, like if they know me, They know that the finger symbol work in my class is going to be pretty high level. But I also try to remind my students that what they are doing in the classroom, the majority of professional dancers do not do. I was like, if a professional dancer uses finger symbols, I'm thrilled. Right. But they're not doing this really complex musical work in general. So I tell my students, you all are rock stars for doing what you do. This is amazing. I want you to know that it's challenging. I want to thank you for taking it on. Um, But I do have some students that are like, yep, not for me. I'm not coming to this session. I'll see you in a few months. And I'm like, that's cool. See you in a few months. You know, I have no problem with someone walking away and being like, I'll be back when you're not doing those finger symbols. And I'm like, I'd love for you to stay, but I get
1: it. That's fine. I'll see you later. Mm, I was just about to ask, actually, do you always teach classes with the finger symbols or do you like alternate? And then also how do you do it? Because some students may be resistant to like, oh, if professional dancers don't do this, why should I do it?
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I do alternate so that, you know, my my students who aren't huge fans of the finger symbols will return every once in a while. And so, you know, each of my classes will do finger symbols at some point in time during the year. And then sometimes I'll just have like the last 10 minutes of class will do finger symbols for a while. So you get, you know, a nice long class without the symbols and then we throw them in so that you don't forget that they exist. Um, but but yeah, for my students who, you know, it's not really what they want to do. They, you know, they have a couple of options. I, you know, I let them know yet. Yeah, yes, this is, this is challenging. And yes, this is complex, but one, like I think all the best things in life are pretty challenging. And the sense of accomplishment that you get when you've tackled that challenging thing and you've done it cannot be compared to anything else, right? If everything was always easy where would the fun be? And I often tell them, I said, if you come into class and you can do everything I show you, ask me for your money back. You haven't learned anything, right? Like you, I want you to be challenged. I want you to grow. And, um, and they all know, like I get, I get so excited when I talk about finger symbols and I, I get, I kind of geek out on it. And I was like, if you're going to hang out with me while we're working on this finger symbol stuff, you're going to do things that are going to challenge you. I find ways to make sure it's approachable for everyone. I make sure that no, no fingers, finger symbol player gets left behind. Um, and so, and then they have that, that choice. Do they want to embrace that challenge? I, I call it, I tell them, you have to embrace the suck. You got to get, you got to be bad at it before you can get good at it. And that is the whole point. The point is not to play it perfectly. The point is the process. So enjoy that process and allow that to be exciting and exploratory for you.
1: Why do you get so excited about finger symbols? What does it mean for you? What it, Why does it bring specifically to you so much joy? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question.
0: I think it's one of those things that, while, of course, it was challenging for me to tackle them when I first learned them twenty two years ago, I quickly realized that I was able to incorporate them in my dancing and play them at a level that that was very pleasing to me, I think, because, I was in marching band as a kid. So when I was in high school, I, I played the flute, I still play the flute, uh, and I marched and played the flute. So I was walking and marching and making music 30, 40, 30 years ago, right? And so I recognize that it's playing, when I put the cymbals on, It feels a bit like coming home. It's very natural to me. So it brings me joy to be able to express myself in multiple ways at once. Not only am I dancing and moving and emoting, but I'm making the music I'm dancing to as well. Like I'm part of that orchestral composition and as a dancer who is also a musician that brings me infinite amounts of joy and then over time since zills have kind of become my thing and i've really reached out to start teaching people online and i have a membership built around it and i have a facebook community built around it i've come to see how many other people were just looking for the right community to explore these instruments and to allow themselves to really find their voice with the finger symbols, that now I see how finger symbols can bring joy to other people and how my finger symbol instruction can open up that door. And that is like, as an instructor, that's the end all be all for me. If I'm helping people access part of themselves and part of their creativity that maybe they didn't access previously, and that's endlessly exciting.
1: Mm. What do you find for your students the trickiest part on, uh, managing to learn to play finger symbols, especially for dancers, I mean.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Moving with them, moving with them. I can give them the craziest pattern and if they stand still and we do it slow enough, everyone will get it. And like, and then I'll say, okay, and now, we we're going to dance <laughs> that's when it's just like psh, like the the brain explodes and it gets real crazy it's it's the the putting the movement with the symbol playing because in essence what you're playing on the finger symbols and what you're doing with your dance rarely matches one to one right you're always doing something that's a little different and the symbols are accompanying the music and your dance is going with the music but they're not one and the same and so i feel like it's a little bit of that integration that becomes the biggest challenge. So we start easy. I say, when you practice, don't sit down. When you practice, let's mark time with your body. You know, we do a little step touch, step touch, mark time with your body. That way, instantaneously, you're always connecting your finger symbol work to the rhythm of the music in your body, and that helps them along the way. But that's that's where I would say the rubber hits the road, and that's where things get kind of crazy, is when you try to do them both at the same time. And so that's the challenging bit we work on a lot.
1: Mm And how was your personal training journey with Zels? How did you practice? Like, was it through some teachers' workshops on your own or something completely different? Because now yeah. you as a teacher, you are sharing your experience with students, but how was your experience as a student on, tackling on uh, finger symbols?
0: Yeah, so I, had a, I have a lot of people who've influenced the way that I play. I got all of my basic instruction, you know, at Cerome School here in Houston when I first started. And it was basic. You know, we did the gallop and we we played the melody and we played mostly with one sound all the time. And that's what I did for many years. And I loved it. I had so much fun. I'd play the Zills when I would go to my restaurant gigs. They were always on my fingers. I I loved them. It was very, I think, sort of the American cabaret style of finger cymbal playing. You always had them on. I had certain restaurants I played at, like they required the dancer to play the Zills. It's, you know, a couple of different patterns, lots of runs, lots of fast, you know, dexterity, that kind of thing. And then I think the first person who sort of opened my mind up to other possibilities, there's a dancer in Austin, her name is Z Helene. And she's known as the Jimi Hendrix of finger symbols, because she is. And I saw her perform, I was doing I was teaching a workshop, and she was there in Austin, and we did a show together. And she did a theatrical performance with the finger symbols. I think it might have been her and her husband, he played the, the tabla and she played the finger cymbals and they had like an argument through their music. They kissed and made up through their music. She was a wild child and she was amazing. And I said, oh my gosh, the finger cymbals can do that. What? And I immediately got her DVD and started working with her drills. And I mean, she can play at the speed of sound and use multiple tones. And I was like, this is really cool. And then I met Karim Nagy, and I took a workshop with him and he started, he started talking about the idea of acapella finger cymbal playing. And I actually had the opportunity, he came into Houston. We connected because I was like, I really like this finger cymbal stuff. And we composed an acapella finger cymbal piece together back in like 2006 or something. I'm not sure. It was many, many years ago. And so he taught me like, what if you play the cymbals with no music at all? And I was like, oh my gosh, you can do that. That's incredible. And it just started kind of going from there. So I studied with him and learned all these different sounds that he used. And now I'm super inspired by like Hane Morgan and the entire sort of um, musician style technique that the zagat players in Egypt use. And so I've been taking his classes with Melissa Gamal as well and learning to, you know, expand my vocabulary. And I think all of that, plus my musical training, plus my my uh, marching band—I <laughs> think all of that has created the sound that na- I now play with. Has created my unique style.
1: Mm. And you're also so passionate about sharing the knowledge, and you love to about for finger symbols with your students. And uh, you were sharing and talking about your experience of teaching like classes in Houston. But I'm curious. How was that experience? Because I bet you got involved into it very actively, too. But how the experience of teaching finger symbols online?
0: Ah, yes. So I've been teaching online since about 2009. I said I'd started doing it before it was cool, before like before we all had to. Right. Uh, And I didn't specifically my early classes were through an old, format called Powhow it's a website that no longer exists but I could stream my live classes uh, online to people to take live and then you know now kind of with covid and everything I've moved over to another format for teaching but I love being able to teach finger symbols online because I can really draw from people all over the world right who are interested in learning, not only through my online studio, but my regular like Zoom classes and whatnot. So I have people who log in from New Zealand and people who log in from England, and we all really get to play. The biggest challenge, obviously, with play, with doing symbols online in a live format is you cannot listen to everyone at the same time. In the studio here in Houston, when I'm doing a live workshop, I can listen. I can kind of walk around the room and listen to people's tones. I can, you know, hear what they're making. They can hear themselves. They can make sure they're on rhythm. And on Zoom, I call it, I call you have to mute everyone or else you have what I call Zilmageddon. It's like Armageddon, but with finger symbols, like because everyone's delay is a little bit different and it's just a cacophony of sounds. So the hard part is I cannot listen except for one at a time with my students online. The good part is in a way is we really utilize the, the camera. So I can have people get really close to their camera with their hands and their symbols. And I can, I can hear what they're playing through seeing what they're playing. So I'll have them bring their hands real up close so that I can look at, you know, how do they have their finger symbols on their fingers? Is there something they're doing with their technique that might be slowing them down or screwing them up? Uh, and so that's, That's been useful. But the thing that makes me a little sad is there's no like, let's all play together at the end of class in the end. But I think maybe for the students, when I have taken classes, I've taken a lot of Zill classes online too. It actually, the experience for the student, for myself, is a little bit better because it's always just me and the teacher. You know, I'm muted. The teacher can't hear me, but I can hear the instructor. I can hear me. I can directly one-to-one compare what I'm doing to what they're doing without 20 other finger symbol players in the room you know, in my, in my ears. So I think for the student, it might be a little bit better. They also don't get like nervous or shy about how they sound because they know I can't hear them. <laughs> and so like, maybe that's a bonus, <laughs> but I think as a, as the student experience, it's, it's quite nice to have just you and the teacher and you can really hone in on those sounds.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I also curious, have you ever received the comments from someone from dancers, especially in the industry, like uh, established dancers or who understand and know this, like comments, something like, ah, oh, these are so old fashioned, why are you doing it? Because I heard even Egyptian teachers and dancers talking about old music recordings. Oh, why would someone put that on stage today? There are so many new versions or something like, oh, it's so old fashioned, why are you doing this? And uh, I don't know if you ever received a, uh, any comments like that about zills or about finger symbols? And if you perceive this instrument as anything, else, such as like old fashioned. Ah,
0: <laughs> uh, oh, that's a really good question. I haven't received very many comments like that directly. I have, I am very verbal and vocal about my love of symbols and how I feel like everyone should learn them, whether or not you choose to use them is your choice, but like everyone should learn them is my, my personal feeling. And I've had instructors, Disagree with me. I've had dancers that you know I respect, and dancers who are well known say, "Ah, you know what? It's not really my thing. I don't play them. I'm not teaching them. You know, I think that they're not they're not that necessary." And I'm like, "Okay, you know, if that's if that's how you feel." I mean, in the honest truth is, in Egypt today, you know, if people are following more sort of the modern Egyptian line of performance, not a lot of uh, dancers play finger cymbals because they have a band behind them that has. A, a Tura player, right? There's a Sagat player in the band, so they don't, like, need, quote-unquote, need to play the finger cymbals because someone else is playing them for them. I realized, and I only realized this recently, that my, my lineage was much more American cabaret. I started dancing with, it was all Greek music, and like I mentioned, you had to use the finger symbols. Like, if I would send someone to sub for me, I would say, make sure you bring your finger symbols. because if a dancer gets on, up on stage without them, the bouzouki player will lean over and say, where are your symbols? Right? Like, so they, they were required. And so for me, I have that lineage and I have that history. So for me and my brain, they are just always required. Now, do I always use them? No. You know, do I feel like there are modern instances where they, you know, don't fit the music or aren't needed? Absolutely. But I feel like they have ancient ties to the dance and whether or not we continue to use them or use them with regularity is a personal choice. But I feel like as a line of study within the dance, I would love for everyone to study them, I understand that every teacher will teach them because if they did not learn to play them or they do not know how to play them, I don't think they should teach them because I've had a lot of students come to me with bad first finger symbol experiences, I think partially because perhaps they studied with someone who didn't have a solid foundation with finger symbols and so couldn't accurately translate in a way that was understandable for a beginner how to play them. Mm.
1: You several times repeated that in your opinion, you think everyone should learn finger symbols regardless if they use or not use or like or not like. Why? Is it just because of, I don't know, historical heritage and respect to the cultural roots of this dance and connection to finger symbols? Or is there any other reasons why you think today someone should learn how to play finger symbols if on practice they most likely will not use them on stage, let's say?
0: Right. So yeah, the historical thing is 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 one aspect, but I think something far more practical to why I believe everyone should learn to play at some point in time is you will never listen to music the same ever again. Once you learn the musical structure within how you are playing, in order to play the finger cymbals and to play them in a way that I feel is truly musical in the style that I like to play now, you are an additional instrument in the composition of the music that you're playing, whether that music is live or recorded. And in order to play musically, you have to develop an ear and an understanding of the music that might be slightly above and beyond how you understand it as a dancer, how a musician listens to music and how a dancer listens to music is slightly different. They're both good. They're different. And when you put the finger symbols on your finger, you are instantaneously a musician. Right. And so you can't just play whatever, I mean, I guess you could, but like if you really want to play well and enhance the music and thusly your dance, you're going to listen to the music in a different way. And a good instructor is going to teach you how your finger cymbal playing is going to sit inside that music and especially now with the more musician style playing that is, is getting to be uh, very popular and a lot of people are getting turned on to it. You absolutely start listening to compositions with a different ear and I promise that that will change your dancing for the better as well because you understand the music in a different way.
1: What do you mean by musicians way of playing?
0: So the musician style of playing, like the way that I define it is sort of like um, when you listen to a Sagat player that's playing in the Egyptian band. So like Hane Morgan is an incredible Sagat player and how he plays, he has, uh, he uses a different hand position completely and he has many, 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 many different sounds, right? And I've taken some classes with him and with the traditional, you know, Zills, the way we play as dancers, I also have many, many, many different sounds that I use when I play my playing when I'm dancing is much more attuned to accompanying the music and accompanying my dance. If someone like Hane is playing, he's actually creating texture within the music. So the musician style, I think, encompasses two ideas, the vast Uh, differences in sound qualities, right? Like they've got the tick and the tuck and the rush and the rush and the ring and the clack, all of these different sounds so that you're creating more texture in your playing. And then you're going to play a little bit more melodically. So while yes, it's still a percussion instrument, like it's listening to the melody, it's listening to the percussion and it's weaving in and out of that composition, which for a dancer, I love studying this I have not yet taken that style of playing and put it with my dancing because I don't have enough bandwidth in my head. My, My brain gets overwhelmed. But listening to the way that the music and the finger symbols match together within the musician style of playing. Right. So this is someone who's playing the sagat and they are not dancing they're not dancing they're playing it only with an ear tune to the music that has been really instructional and very inspirational for me to look at the way i play the finger symbols and see if i can become a little bit more deeply embedded in the structure of the music and a little bit less my own solo line that floats over the top
1: mm, that's so interesting because as dancers typically on the at least on the basic level of playing finger symbols we usually learn three main sounds it's sort of like I'll describe with my words but uh, you, you probably can do it better but like the closed sort of a clap then a high pitch uh, like sort of ring then we right away open this and then we when we do on the sort of a like rib edge uh, of one zil to another it's three sounds and then we alternate and do, do different structures but basically using these three sounds from music point of view from musician point of view there are i don't know how many maybe dozens maybe hundreds of possibilities of what you can do with zils actually <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how
0: many there are. I think that last count for the number of sounds that I can personally make, I've made it up to about 15, I think. Now, do I use all of those sounds when I play? Almost never. And if a cymbal player is using three sounds and dancing, I am beyond excited. I think that's amazing because a lot of times the, the more subtler sounds and the more texture you get, if you're playing with a loud band, if you're playing with really loud recorded music, it gets lost. It gets lost. Right. But when people start to play with slightly more like soloistic opportunities or I personally like to play my finger cymbals with no music, I do entire shows where there's, you know, my, my whole performance is me and my cymbals and that's all, then all the sounds can be heard. And that's where there's some serious Freedom, right? And so yeah, the musician style playing definitely dives into more sounds because they are, you know, perhaps they're mic'd, they can be heard really well, like all of that, all of that tonality is coming through.
1: Do you take finger cymbals to perform on like a big stages or you usually choose for some smaller performances areas? It's still theatres, but a little bit smaller. And I'm asking from perspective of uh, sound, literally like delivering sound to the big audience when you adjust a cappella with zills Is there any tricks to sort of amplify the level, like the, um, how to say, it, the... Uh, loudness of the instrument when you are in the maybe possibly bigger performance area and it's just you alone and trying to play cymbals?
0: That's a really good question. We actually had a huge discussion about this not that long ago in my in my Zalicious group on Facebook. People were wondering, is there a way to mic your finger cymbals? And our general answer was not that we know of, right? There's no way. So I I bring cymbals to pretty much every show, (laughs) but I have 16 or 17 sets. Right. I don't play all of them all the time, but I kind of collect them. And I definitely have some that are far louder than others. And the really loud ones do not come to the restaurant with me. I don't want to hurt anybody. Right. I don't want to just to pain anyone's ears. And then the, the softer sets do not come to the concert stage with me. Right. And so partially it's choosing the correct symbol for the venue. Um, I have had maybe one instance actually fairly recently where I was playing. I was dancing with like a rock band on stage and I really wanted to bring my cymbals, but I had listened to another dancer dance with them the night before and she had tried to use her cymbals. And I was like, Oh yeah, I could not hear your cymbals. That rock band was so loud. Uh, So I opted to not wear my cymbals for that performance, but I generally bring them all the time. And the only way I've found like if I'm in a stage setting and I really, I'm doing acapella cappella. And I want people to hear everything. Luckily, most theaters, like the acoustics are quite good. If I'm doing something that's quiet, because I have some sounds on my zills that are very quiet. And I almost, I want the audience to kind of get real quiet and lean in and try to hear what it is that's going on. I'll get right up to the edge of the stage. And all you have to do is kind of make a face at them. And they know they're supposed to turn on their listening ears. They know they're supposed to lean in and figure out what's going on. And there's something magical about that moment where the, the whole audience is like, you hear is your symbol making this tiny sound and everyone is listening to it happen and so that's that's a powerful moment like a connection with the audience
1: is there any tricks or tips for dancers to pay attention in order to to choose a good pair of uh, finger symbols for them especially those who are not very experienced in this instrument or choosing or buying this instrument
0: Right. I always tell my students, like, you can get online and you can, you know, search on Amazon and search on eBay and find a $10 pair of finger symbols. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because I have found that finding an instrument that you enjoy listening to is crucial to your practice. It, like, there's a lot of people who don't really like the sound of finger symbols, uh, they think it's too high pitched or it hurts their ears. And there is a huge range of tonalities and notes that finger symbols can make if you find a good manufacturer. I love, love, love to death Soroyan Mastercrafts. I think they make the best finger symbols on the planet. I am huge fans of them and I own almost all of their Zills. And I have some that are really low in metal, mellow in sound, and I have some that are higher pitched and more bell-like. And so I think finding a set that you enjoy listening to is huge. And then I've actually even found, I do this, um, finger symbol challenge every year. It's a, a 10 day challenge where I teach people how to play like a cool riff on their finger symbols and we have daily lives and whatnot. And there's always like an opportunity for them to get discounts on finger symbols during the course of the challenge. And I've found when people order their first pair of what they call real symbols, they're like, I got, you know, a big girl pair of symbols, uh, and they get them in the mail. They're like, Oh my gosh, this technique is easier oh my gosh, this technique sounds better because I'm working with a quality instrument. So while when someone is starting, it's tempting to just kind of get a cheapy pair to kind of to get going, a quality pair of finger symbols is not going to be crazy expensive. So I say, you know, you know, reach out to someone who knows, reach out to me. I'm actually in the process of making a finger symbol buying guide to give to people just to give them ideas of, you know, what size do you want to start with? You know, there are different sizes. There's different weights. Do you want, you know, you might not want big, heavy zills to start. You might want small light zills to kind of get you used to it. And then eventually you'll graduate to sort of a larger set if that's what, you know, appeals to you. But I think it's worthwhile to get a quality instrument. You know, another reason I love Soroyan is because you can get on their website and you can listen to audio files of every single set of symbols so you can make sure that you're not annoyed by the sound that your zills make and you'll want to practice them more.
1: Speaking of annoying sounds, I know that another pinpoint for many dancers and for many students is trying to practice at home because yes. neighbors... Not always appreciate a uh, zils concert at any point <laughs> of the day or night. Hopefully not at night, but uh, even during day. So, what are the tricks or suggestions? How to? I heard one like put socks around your but uh, okay, it may mute sound, but I don't know how it actually influenced the technique and proper like practice. So what do you suggest for students who come to you and feel like, ah, oh, I kind of feel uh, struggle trying to practice at home because I always get an argument with my neighbors. What can I do? What should I do? Right. No, absolutely. And I, I hear that story so often and it pains me. I'm
0: like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so grateful. I, you know, live in a standalone home and my, 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 uh, my family, they're used to the symbols at this point. They don't mind me playing them. Uh, so yes, muffling the symbols does change your technique a little bit, but I that's the easiest one. I'm like, if you can find a baby sock, a teeny tiny one, you know, cut off the excess so you don't have a whole bunch of extra dangling around there. I used to do that actually when my daughter was very small because I didn't want to wake her up for her nap. And so I would just slip a sock on there. You'll destroy the sock within a matter of, you know, weeks. But uh, it works to muffle the sound. And you can still, you know, get the idea of the tempo of your playing, the way your fingers move. And you can still hear thud, 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 thud while you're playing. You're not going to get your beautiful bouquet of sounds as you do that, but it's better than nothing. They even make like little crocheted Zill mufflers. I've seen tutorials Mm -hmm. online or they sell them. If you search for Zill muffler, that's a thing. And they're real cute. They come in different colors and they're shaped to the Zill. So they're a little less clunky than say baby socks. The other thing that's really cool right now is you can actually buy... Wooden finger symbols. I bought a pair of finger symbols the other day that are made out of coconut shells. They're beautiful. They're painted like turquoise on the inside. Now they only make a couple sounds they're not going to do they don't ring you can't ring with a pair of wooden finger symbols, but they sound very pretty. And they're really fun to play with and you can do all of like, if you're working on dexterity and being able to move your hands into the different positions to create the different shapes or and the different sounds, you can do that. You're not going to hear it like you will with the metal cymbals, but they're great for practice and fairly inexpensive, very lightweight, easy to carry around. So there's there's lots of options there.
1: Oh, that's cool. I didn't know about uh, coconut uh, Zills. <laughs> that sounds cool, <laughs> just for the sake of <laughs> of the idea. <laughs>
0: I had a student, she was like, I can't get any zills fast enough to practice what I want to practice. She went out and bought two very large buttons or four, I guess, four very large buttons and made the cutest set of finger symbols out of these big buttons
1: and practiced with those. Wow. That's cool. Well, that's another example. And when you want something, you get it. Uh, everything Absolutely. else is excuses. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Along with teaching uh, activities, you also kind of run two other projects. You are the co-owner of Belladonna Dance, which you already mentioned, and you're also the director of Urban Hipsy Company. Uh, Do all dancers in this project also play (laughs) Zilsa? Yes, (laughs) is the
0: short answer. (laughs) Urban Hipsy there are some really rock star finger symbol players in there. Some of them are willing, some of them are not as willing, but they all do it <laughs> because I'm the director and they have to, we actually, we created, and it's pretty cool. I, I'm sure there are other groups who do it now, but at the time we had never seen it done before. We do improvisational tribal style dance and we have an entire vocabulary of finger symbol patterns that are matched to our combinations. So like you cue a combination, you go into the combination and we have a complex finger symbol pattern that matches not every single combination cuz you need to breathe sometimes but most like a lot of majority of our fast combinations have finger symbols that are embedded into the movement so we play finger symbols all the time um, and then my my more cabaret you know egyptian style troupe it's much more at this point it's much more of a, a booking company like we book dancers to go out and perform but as we bring new dancers in and audition new dancers we're like you play finger symbols right just because not because necessarily we're, you know, if, we, if we're going to send them to a restaurant that requires it, we will let them know. But also they're just great to get people's attention. If you're coming in at a big wedding, you're coming in at a big festival event, even if you don't play Zills, but for the first, you know, minute or two as you enter, it's just such a great way to get people's attention and audiences love them.
1: Mm, yeah, it, it's something unexpected because not everyone in my general audience kind of expect Or oh, the dancers also playing the uh, Uh, playing music instrument or what's that it's not uh, very popularized uh. I mean some of course uh, some people in some communities for them it will be natural and of course but uh, for many people in general audience that would be extra level of unexpected uh, unexpected surprise or not only a dancer also dancer and musician oh she was playing something cool (laughs) yeah Uh uh What's the difference between these two projects? So you mentioned that uh, Belladonna is more like uh, classical ballet dance and more like agency. What's the concept of Urban uh, Hipsy Company?
0: Yeah, Urban Hipsy is the first troupe I ever created, right? So Urban Hipsy has been around now since, I think I created this group in 2004. Uh, so they've been around for a very long time. And this troupe I created when I was looking, I wanted to do improvisational group you know, synchronized dance. I wanted to do tribal style. I wanted to do something a bit like you know fat chance belly dance, but didn't have anyone to do it with. So I said, I'm going to make a troupe. Who wants to join my troupe? And I literally just spent years training people. We came up with combos. We built a lot of our uh, vocabulary off of Domba, the uh, dance troupe from Arizona that no longer exists, But I had studied with them ex- extensively. And so I built this troupe because I wanted to do group improv and didn't have a group to do it with. And we have become fast friends. We've gone through a number of changes. At one point we had a sister troupe uh, and we had maybe about 20 different dancers. And then eventually like we all got older for some reason and had kids and so we stopped dancing quite as much. And so now there's, there's five of us and we don't perform with any regularity at all. But usually like twice a year, we'll decide to go to a, a workshop event or we'll hear about a festival that we're like, ah, oh, we really wanna dance. And the beauty of it is because these five ladies now we've been dancing together for 12 13 14 years like we'll get together for one two hour rehearsal and we've got the show ready to go because we do mostly improv we have improv, and we have like a library of choreographies we've done in the past and we'll be like let's do an improv number and this choreography let's get together for two hours brush it off and we are ready to perform and otherwise we just mostly like hang out and go Mm. to lunch but yeah they're lifelong friends now
1: I know with this company, with this troop, uh, you, also, or you also had a point that you kind of renamed the troop and I know that the reason and the, the subject is also very important. So can we bring it up and can you share a little bit why was that decision and what it means for you?
0: Yes, absolutely. So originally, the troop was named Urban Gypsy. This was, you know, 18, 19 years ago, when we created this troop, and we went through a huge, you know, decision of how we wanted to to name the the troop. Oh, my, it was so hard to pick a name. And I remember that that whole process. And, And we picked the name, you know, there were many, many troops in that era that used the word gypsy unknowingly, right? We just, it, in my mind and in all of our troop members' minds, and in a lot of people's minds, is why so much education needs to happen. It has this very positive connotation of like this free-spirited dancing person with the big skirt and the tambourine. And that was, I was like, that's us. That's totally us. Let's go with it, right? And a number of years later, we started to learn more. There was a lot more um, outspokenness about gypsy being a racial slur and at that point in time I remember looking at my co-director I was like oh my gosh like this this is not this is not good like what what do we do about this and and we weren't sure you know it was sort of rumblings for a long time in the community and you'd hear something here and you'd hear something there and there's definitely still a lot of opinions that float around about it but in the end despite there being varying opinions from different people I talked to I said you know what? If the name of my troop is causing harm or offensive to anyone in any way, and all I need to do to remedy that is change the name, I will change the name. Mm-hmm. Like, that's easy. If that's all I need to do, right? Whether or not, you know, this person or that person feels it's necessary. I'll do what's that doesn't hurt me at all. And it, but except like coming up with a new name was really, really hard. It was really hard. And we had all these ideas. And then Urban Hipsy actually was something one of the girls joked about offhandedly one day. And I was like, that's it. Because it harkens back to the name that we had. It's a little like, you know, cheeky kind of idea. And obviously, we dance with our hips all the time. And so, We've been Urban Hipsy ever since just to try to be better global citizens, more understanding and more understanding with our language.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and it's a uh, never-ending learning process in all aspects, both in dance skills and in terms of community and culture and history and uh, figuring out. So, yeah, thank you for sharing and uh, for bringing it up and highlighting this this subject to it. Thank you for asking. Yeah. I know that you have quite a few projects going on and upcoming. So I would love to ask you if there's anything you would like to share with our listeners, any upcoming events, classes, courses, uh, challenges. I know you have like uh, doing regular zealos challenges. Anything that's coming either end of this year, maybe in November December, December uh, or already for 2023. Any plans that you would like to bring listeners attention to so they don't miss it? <laughs> Absolutely. I've got a lot of things in
0: plan, and I'm actually kind of putting my 2023 uh, schedule together right now. So, in December, this will be the fourth year of what I call the 12 days of Belly Dance Christmas. I do this every year in December. It's 12 days of little giveaways, freebies, discounts on different uh, classes and items sort of in my in my world. What I do with this is I give people a little bit of a taste of my membership. I have a, an online membership called The Belly Dance Journey. And within that, every month we have recorded content and live classes that complement each other to help people progress in their dance journey along with an incredible community. And so part of the 12 Days of Belly Dance Christmas is a little like taste of what that community and what that journey is like. So I'll have some free uh, downloadable or free um, online technique classes. Finger symbol classes. We'll do some live Zoom technique classes, finger symbol classes. There'll be some community building. I have a a vibrant online community in Facebook that will connect in. And then I give like little discounts on some of my courses and whatnot. And then it is one of the only two times a year that my membership opens up for new participants. So I open that membership in May and in December. And so I'll be opening it up at the end of the 12 days of Belly Dance Christmas. And then I have my 2023. Zill challenge, the finger symbol challenge will be happening in May of uh, of 2023 and that's 10 days of finger symbol tutorials delivered to your inbox plus 10 days of live Q&As on Facebook and lots of prizes and giveaways we do a big graduation ceremony it's it's so much fun and so if people you know want to connect and get on my mailing list I email people I have a great mailing list I every week I send people emails with some free content just just actually this week I released a video of a tour of the Soroyan finger symbol manufacturing facility. And I'm going to be releasing several more videos from that tour that I took this year uh, to my mailing list soon. So I'd be happy to share. I have a, a link where people can get like a free finger symbol jumpstart course. And if that's okay, I would share that with your audience and they can jump in on that. And then they'll be on my mailing list and you'll know when the 12 days of Christmas are happening and when the Zill Challenge is happening. So that's just it's Zill Star is the name of the, of the course, Zill Star. And you can sign up for that. It's a little free finger symbol jumpstart course in case you've been uh, excited by what we've talked about today with the finger symbols.
1: Absolutely, thank you for sharing. So Zill Star as one word?
0: Mm-hmm. So it's sahirabellydances.com/zillstar, and there'll be a little opt-in form to get that free course.
1: I will also include link in the show notes, so, so there will be a direct, uh, you know, link and way to 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 find that page. A quick question also: I'm really curious because I heard from several dancers, and there are different like formats of work uh, and online education for your membership. Why do you open access on the twice per year like if you have a bunch of pre-recorded content why not just to have let people like whenever they want jump in why it's only like twice per year what for you why you did this decision
0: yeah, good question. And actually, I used to it used to be open all the time. And I, I closed it actually about one year ago, I decided to close it and only open it twice a year for two reasons, I changed the format completely, like my membership is different than a lot of online memberships, because it's not just access to all of my online, I have like, over 50 online recorded courses that people instantly get access to in the membership, but it's much more than that. So we do that. That's what's there. That's your baseline content that you can always get on on top of that, I give a free technique, we do a technique uh, on demand recorded content every month, a zoom class every month for technique and on an on demand recorded content finger symbol class every month, a zoom class On finger symbols every month and then a live Q&A in our members only group and so it's a very interactive like I see these people on a regular basis and it's very interactive and closing the membership so that it was only open twice a year allows me to better serve my members one because I'm not constantly trying to promote my membership to get people into it and two, I liken it kind of like to taking a journey on a boat. Like everybody gets onto the cruise, right? You're given your glass of champagne, you toast, and then the cruise sets sail and you're all there together. We do regular journey member clubhouses where we sit down, hang out and talk. And I feel like we have like our family. We're all on the journey together. I'm introducing the material all together and people are sort of onboarded. And allowed to follow along and then when i open it up again i have to divert my attention a little bit from those members to say okay we're bringing new people onto the boat everybody get their champagne ready here we go again and so it allows me to better focus on my members to better deliver all this monthly deliverable content that i give to them and then when new people come on i'm able to do a really uh, thorough onboarding where i'm like welcome to the membership Here's how it works. Meet everybody. Here's, you know, here's your hub. Here's how it all works. And then I can make sure that new folks really get integrated right away. So it's not a, you signed up. Here's a whole bunch of classes have at it. Like Mm -hmm. it's very, I'm really in contact with them.
1: I was curious because it's different formats. And, uh, Uh, I also have membership but mine is actually open so I was also always always, like whenever I hear like all opens once per year or or, like twice per year I'm always curious like okay what's the decision for you personally and it'll be different for everyone so thanks for sharing. Anyway. (laughs) Links to your website, to your online classes and your membership will be in the uh, show notes to this episode, including your social media, but regarding social media, what is the best way for people to connect to you and to follow your activities? Do you have a favorite one that you post more frequently or more often Where and you prefer to forward people to that specific social media? Yeah, I'm pretty active both on Instagram
0: and on Facebook. And I'm at Sahira Belly Dances on both of those. So if they have a preferred one, you can find me. On, on both of those and i post very regularly to both
1: <laughs> <laughs> well all links as i mentioned will be in the show notes and before i ask you our final question which you probably kind of uh, know what's coming up but i want once again to thank you so much for being together with us and sharing your story your experience and your passion to Zills. i almost feel like aha uh-huh, i have with me a pair of finger symbols i probably should pick them up again <laughs> right here postponing. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for <laughs> (laughs) spreading this passion, spreading this love to this instrument and awareness and uh, kind of um, making people also fall in love with it just by listening or at least sparking their curiosity because that's valuable from both uh, practical uh, like you know more skills for dancers but also from historical and cultural point of view for this instrument to be alive as a part of dance practice so thank you for doing all this work and for sharing your Passionate love to it.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity. This has been a total pleasure. And yes, if I can spark a little passion and interest in a, in a few listeners, I will be a very happy woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well... Speaking of passion and love, our final traditional question of the podcast is exactly about this, which I ask every single guest, regardless of what we talked about. And I'm very excited and curious to ask you. And it will be not specific about zills; It will be about dance and belly dance. So the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again? So you keep doing it for so many years.
0: Oh my goodness. That I love this question so much.
1: Uh, I, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to the, have the, where
0: I would have answered you if we had talked last week, and then I have a, a slightly modified answer because of what I've been doing recently. It, I belly dance, I say is my therapy, especially the last few years when the world has gone absolutely crazy and all these things have been happening. I fall in love with it when I allow myself to not make it, the to do on my list. It is not my job. It is not the thing I have to create the choreography for class, make sure I make the video for my members when it is, I'm just going to get into a space and dance because my heart and my soul needs it. And I need to do that more often because I think as business owners who are dancers, or we own a dance business so often is I better do this dance thing. I need to make this choreography. I need to post this video. I need to prep for this class. And that's good but like we forget the emotional connection and why we've loved it so much. This is what, and I, that is all still true. This past weekend I had the opportunity to go to an amazing event that was all about dancing to live music. And within the course of 24 hours, I danced to three different live bands, all completely different styles, kinds of music. Two of them were Arab. One of them was a rock band and I have never been so freakishly happy at to be on stage dancing to music. I had never one of them. I'd never heard before. didn't even know the musicians. I met them, you know, five minutes before I went on stage and that ability to spontaneously create with other people in a, in a, a performance scenario, like filled my well for months to come. It was amazing. And this, when I get to do this, which is few and far between these days, I remember, like, how awesome it was back in the day when I danced to a live band every single
1: weekend. That's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. The more people get inspired, the better it is for our dance community. Until next time, keep shimming and see you soon. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club, helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends, and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yana danceclub.com, link in the show notes, or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for seven days, for free.